welcome to Vista Talks, interesting discussions with interesting people from all around the world. I'm your host for today, Priscilla Charles, and I'm joined today in studio by Margaret Gallagher. Margaret is the professor and chair of Anglo-Irish Literature and Drama at University College Dublin and author of the Mam Trasna Murders, Language, Life and Death in 19th Century Ireland. Thank you very much, Margaret, for being on the show. Really glad to have you today. So now let's move on and get on to the show. So Margaret, first of all, I'd like to, to ask you about yourself. Can you take us through your background? Uh, delighted to be here, Priscilla, and thank you for your interest in my work. It's every academic stream to talk to a larger audience, <laughs> <Thanks very much laughs> to move to be beyond the ivory tower of the university. And I'm a great admirer of your work, so delighted to be here. Uh, yeah, as you mentioned, I hold the chair of Anglo-Irish Literature and Drama at UCD. Uh, my background is a BA in English and History. Uh, and then I studied for my doctorate at Boston College. Oh, wow, fantastic. And there's a nice history to the chair. It was first established in 1966. And when it was established in UCD in that year, it was the first of its kind in the world. And its intention was to recognise the distinctive nature of Irish literature in English. I think the term Anglo-Irish can seem maybe a slightly old fashioned word now, but it's still a very lively concept that Irish literature in English is a distinctive tradition and thankfully a, a very lively one. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Could you tell us a little bit about um, uh, when did you arrive at uh, UCD and what attracted you in, you know, in studying um, Anglo-Irish literature, really? Where did the interest come from? I've held this post since 2012 and previously I taught in Maynooth um, University and I think in many ways my years as a doctoral student in Boston College had a shaping influence uh, when I was studying as a graduate student in the late 1980s. Authors like Yeats, Joyce and Beckett were still taught as part of courses on British fiction <laughs> or poetry or drama. I, I'm glad to say that isn't the case anymore and one is less likely to encounter that. But I think there was a sense even then in the 1980s that people hadn't yet recognised uh, that Irish literature in both its languages, English and Irish, should be recognised as its own tradition. So I suppose in many ways I've been a sort of pro- uh, proselytizer or advocate for that cause ever since. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, well, we're really glad that you're, uh, you became such an advocate um, cause, because now we, we get to talk about uh, your current book. But before that, I just want to ask you a couple of questions. Um, you've actually, you've also co-authored various publications um, about the Irish society, um, including the feminization of famine, Cambridge history of Irish literature, co-edited with Philippe O'Leary, uh, and Ireland uh, and Quebec, interdisciplinary essays on history, culture and society, co-edited with Michael Kennell. And you were obviously guest editor on um, Iris Island, special issue on Ireland and the Contemporary, published uh, two years ago. So, um, so I understand part of your family was located in County Cork, right, and was bilingual and uh, speaking both Irish and English at the turn of the 20th century. So, is this where you kind of pick up, you know, uh, this interest as well of um, of the Irish language and and kind of this kind of attracted you and drawn even more than just like the the, the work of Yeats and you know. 
Absolutely, and, and thanks for mentioning the publications. I, I think the most relevant one would be the Cambridge History of Irish Literature. Uh, one of the things that Philip O'Leary and I were very keen to do in that publication, which is a collection of 30 essays, uh, is to represent both Irish language and English language writing, um, even though the project is written in English, and we're very proud of that. So, for example, the English language enters only in the fourth chapter, because the, the first chapter in that volume is on Irish writing and Hiberno-Latin writing Mm -hmm. in Ireland up until um, the year 800 and then the next chapter goes to 1200 and the next chapter Irish writing to 1600 so it isn't until the fourth chapter that one gets to look at um, English English. exactly and it's a good reminder you know that English is a relatively young um, what would you say arrival uh, on the cultural scene in Ireland if one looks at it you know over 1500 years but one of my regrets for that volume is um, was really to do with its structure because we had chapters on Irish literature in English and chapters on Irish literature in Irish. We didn't really have any chapters that were looking at the interrelationship mm-hmm. um, between the traditions. And I, I suppose I had a, a sense there of a sort of unfinished business. One of the interesting things about Ireland in linguistic terms is, of course, the language shift that we moved from being predominantly an Irish-speaking country to predominantly an Mm English-speaking country, and that we did it in international terms quite rapidly and almost decisively. Thankfully not, and Irish continues to be a living language today, but there there are times in our history it seemed as if that wouldn't be the case. So what interested me for many years is how does a language shift happen How does it take place? Mm -hmm. And of course, to move from being predominantly speak a culture that predominantly speaks one language to another, one needs significant periods of transitional bilingualism um, in between. Uh, And to my mind, that's still a topic that's very under researched um, in um, Irish culture. Visitors to Ireland in the 19th century regularly commented on the fact that there were families where the grandparents spoke only Irish and very little English and families where the grandchildren spoke almost only English, English with yeah. very little Irish. Yeah. Of course, it's it's a very common story still today, particularly yeah. exactly for, for uh, migrant communities, uh, a very common experience. Um, but it interested me, how did language matter in the 19th century? Did it matter if one spoke Irish mm-hmm. or English? And were there periods of time when people spoke both languages? So th- that's, I suppose, the first influence. And then the second one, more briefly, is, uh, again, uh, you've recognised that, is, is a personal one. Um, for many of us in Ireland, uh, the coming online of the Irish census uh, five or six years ago was a treasure trove that we yeah. could all research our family and to my surprise I discovered that my great grandfather uh, who lived in North Cork in the early years of of the 20th century was an elderly man at that stage was bilingual and Priscilla I'd never known that I I would have I would have thought that Irish had really gone from our family situation much earlier and but both my great grandparents on that side uh, were bilingual speakers of of Irish and English. But what's very striking in the census form is that when one looks at the children, including the mm-hmm. man, the boy really who would become my grandfather, is that he spoke English only. So clearly, the family there was a shift, were, yeah. were exactly were making the decision not to pass Irish on to their children. 
And at the very same time, a family just a few miles down the road, uh, the Ahern family, which included a young woman called Margaret Ahern, uh, who would emerge as my grandmother uh, and would marry the young man I mentioned earlier. You had a very interesting variant in their family. Her uh, parents, who were um, a little more well-to-do, relatively speaking, Mm -hmm. at that time spoke English only. But in the census form, when they recorded their children's linguistic ability, they recorded their children Uh, as bilingual, as bilingual, as as speaking English and Irish, because at that stage, by the early 20th century, uh, they were learning English in school. And of course, it's very unusual in a census situation to have children described as having a language that their parents didn't have. So clearly they were sufficiently proud of the fact uh, that their children uh, were learning English to record it in the census form. Mm, Absolutely. And to put that in more formal terms, it means that in one branch of my family, we had an inherited bilingualism that was about to to vanish. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, we had a sort of acquired bilingualism, I suppose, sociolinguistics would call it, uh, in terms of these children who were learning another language at school. So my impotence for this project in that sense was both a a formal historical one, but also quite a strong personal one uh, about a bilingualism in my family that I hadn't known existed. That's fantastic. Yeah, I remember um, reading um, you in the preface saying that your your sister was helping with um, the general um, genealogy, right? Doing That's some right. Research. My sister yes. Gemma did wonderful yes. work uh, to help me find that and, and, and indeed helped me to uh, discover a yes. lot of the mysteries in the Miles Joyce family as well, because as we'll as we'll find as we talk about that, this project, yeah. uh, the genealogy in, in, in the book I've just written is also very complicated. So Gemma imagine, did yeah. great, great assistance there. That's fantastic. Yeah, I would love to do the same myself, really. <laughs> um, so now I'd like to talk about your latest publication, The Mam Trasna Murders, Language, Life and Death in 19th Century Ireland, published in late 2017. So this book is a study of an really of an infamous historical and unprecedented case in Ireland in 1882 that saw Miles Joyce, an innocent Irish man, being hanged for a crime that he had not committed. Could you Take us through the story and tell us what happened, please. I'd be happy to uh, and indeed would encourage people listening to the podcast to buy the book and not least because there's a helpful glossary (laughs) that will make some of these quite complicated details um, easier to follow, but I'm happy to have a go. Uh, At the centre of the book is a very tragic story. On the night of the 17th of August 1882, five members of a family were brutally murdered. Uh, They were members of the Joyce family. They lived in a townland called Mam Trasna, which lay or still lies on the border of counties Galway and Mayo. Five members of the family were brutally murdered. A man called John Joyce, his wife Bridget. Bridget was his second wife and stepmother to his children. Three uh, of his children were brutally affected uh, by the murders. Two of them were killed. Michael, who was only 17 years at the time, uh, John's daughter, Margaret, who was only 14 uh, years of age, and his son, Patsy, who was uh, very badly injured, though survived and was the only member of the family present that evening to survive. Uh, I suppose a final brutal detail was the death of John's mother, Margaret, an 80-year-old woman who was 
was bludgeoned to death and, and the details of, of, of the murder are, are still very brutal to encounter, very brutal. One uh, other member of the family, uh, a man called Martin, just a young man at the time, was working in a neighbouring family uh, and uh, by virtue of that, I suppose, lucky event uh, survived the night of violence. Um, in the days that followed, uh, a number of arrests were made. And uh, to summarise this, I suppose as briefly as one could, uh, a total of 10 men were arrested and charged with the murders. They were local men. And as it emerged quite sensationally during the trial, uh, a number of them were related, related yes, uh, to the murder victims. Now. That's right. A number of the, of the men who were accused were first cousins uh, of John Joyce. Uh, and a further very striking detail is the main witnesses for the prosecution uh, were another branch of the Joyce family, another set of, of first cousins. And, and in many ways, these are some of the details that made the case so sensational at the time uh, and still, I think, makes it a, a very compelling one. The very grim details continue. Two of the 10 men arrested turned what was called Queen's evidence at the time. In other words, they became approvers or informers against uh, uh, their, their neighbours and the others. And the trials took place in Dublin uh, in November 1882. For people who know Dublin, they took place uh, in Smithfield in a historic courthouse uh, at Green Street uh, in Smithfield in Dublin. By then, as I mentioned, two of the men had turned approvers, so eight men finally uh, under underwent uh, a trial and I think underwent is the word it, one can only begin to imagine how shocking it was for these men coming from a rural area to find themselves um, in Dublin on trial for their lives and three of the men were sentenced, all of the men were found guilty, three of them were sentenced uh, to hanging and were executed and five of the men were sentenced uh, to uh, life in jail which at the time was a 20 year se sentence mm -hmm. I suppose finally, uh, on the summary of the case, Priscilla, um, the, the details that have most resonated to the present is the recognition, which was the case at the time and I think was compounded over the years, that one of the men who was executed, Miles Joyce, was innocent. And Miles Joyce was a monoglot Irish speaker. Uh, he spoke Irish only. Uh, and for decades afterwards, uh, the fact of his innocence reverberated down uh, through time and, of course, led, you know, as we can talk about later, to his being pardoned yes. uh, just over a year ago. OK, yes. Thank you very much um, for that um, summary, if I may say, Margaret. So I actually want to come back on um, the last part what we just discussed, three out of the ten men who were arrested for the murder were sentenced to death, including um, including Joyce. Um, so two of them insisted that Joyce was innocent. Okay. Yet the last one, Joyce, was still executed, but he claimed his innocence up until the end. Uh, and saying in Irish, um, I was innocent as a child in the cradle. So can you can you tell us really what, what happened? How? How did that happen? Yes. Um, you know, in, in many ways, what is at the heart of the story is is a sort of murder mystery. And I, I think there, there are details in the murder mystery um, that are still not fully known. For example, the motive for the murders, just to go, go back to that for a moment, is something that I think readers of the book, you know, will are, are especially interested in. And I have to say, hands up there, I have to leave that as an open question, though it seems to be that one of the motives was great rivalry, um, particularly ab about um, she 
sheep grazing and about access to land, very old theme in Irish society. Um, but certainly if we can, I think, be agreed on anything or certain of anything, it is that Miles Joyce was innocent and very much as you say, uh, the two other men who were sentenced to death on the eve of the execution um, attested formally, the documents still exist in the National Archives, that they were guilty, they admitted to being part of the murder party, though both men emphasised that they weren't the leaders, yeah. uh, but they also attested in very strong terms um, that, that Miles Joyce um, was innocent. It would seem that the system of justice at the time, and, and obviously justice is, is not really the most accurate word here, was so wedded to securing the convictions and the executions that it couldn't admit its own error. Um, so on the eve of the execution, the Lord Lieutenant, um, whose home, I suppose, ironically, was in what is now the President of Ireland's residence. Oh, really? Yeah, that's right, in Phoenix Park, in what we now call Orson Uchthron, at the time was the Vice Regal Lodge. He sent a telegram saying the law must take its course and Miles Joyce uh, was wrongfully uh, executed. And you're absolutely right, I think, to pick out those lines, um, to recite them in Irish. They are Tom Cosair, Leshon Lanov, Atosag Lievon. And that phrase, I think, is, is especially haunting one. I am as innocent as the child in, in the cradle. And language, I think, played a, a role um, in the case to the very end. Uh, clearly, it played a role, and, and, and that's something we can come back to um, in Miles Joyce not having a fair trial, and, and the levels of injustice begin there. But also the issue of language played a role to the last, because to the very last moment of the execution, Miles Joyce protested his innocence in Irish, the language that he could speak. Uh, and we know this because at least one of the journalists present and um, by the 1880s, hangings were private. But we know that one of the journalists present could understand Irish. So um, for the, the account that he published the next day in the Galway newspaper, um, which he represented, uh, he reproduced Miles Joyce in English. And that's really how we know what Miles Joyce said. And um, But because he protested to the last, and, and this is especially gruesome detail, the news slipped. Yes. And he died um, of strangulation rather than a broken neck. And, and again, I suppose the levels that reverberate down to the present, a man wrongfully executed, um, tried in a language which he couldn't understand and, and experienced even at the end uh, such a violent death. Yes, absolutely, yes. You you mentioned as well um, in one of your visits in uh, the United States that... Um, but there was a recent case of a man as well who was uh, sentenced to death by a lethal injection as well and uh, where um, the course of events if i may say um, did not go as planned and died in dreadful circumstances as well yeah that's right i mean i think uh, you know a book like this can change in different contexts and you know in one context in Ireland where we don't have capital punishment the case of Miles Joyce seems like a historic case yes. but then to talk about this book for example in North America you know where capital punishment yes. is, 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 is still practiced uh, makes it a, a, a very different case entirely. And, and that for me was one of one of the key, I think, topics in the book is in a way, and sometimes that's implicit in the book, sometimes it's explicit, is the links between the historical and, and the contemporary and, and, and centrally to do with the issue of language. Um, Miles Joyce's trial was conducted almost entirely in English. Mm -hmm. One of the great ironies, which I discovered when I began to research the book, um, 
is that the case was really complicated um, in relation to language. Um, so, for example, one because this case is a case that's still quite well known in Ireland, one of the things that's sometimes said is that none of the men um, could understand English. Mm-hmm. And in, in fact, that wasn't the case. Um, the, the two men who were uh, con- convicted before Miles Joyce were quite comfortable in English. They were really quite comfortable bilinguals mm-hmm. because they had lived and worked in, in Ireland yeah. and England. They had, li- they had lived and worked in England as agricultural labourers over a period of time. And what I discovered, Priscilla, when I began to research it, is that instead of of it being as simple as none of the men could speak English, you had a a spectrum of linguistic abilities. Uh, You had men who were accused, who were comfortable speaking English. You had men who had some English. And then you had the case of Miles Joyce, who definitely uh, had no English at all. That's really clear from the research I did. That's one of the factors uh, that makes the language shift so interesting at that time that here we have a group of men more or less the same socioeconomic class. In terms of age, they, they, they varied all right in generations, but they were from the same area. And at one moment of time, you had men who were monoglot, men who were bilingual. And of course, one of the reasons why I think this book is such an interesting, uh, I hope, contribution um, to language shift and language studies is that we get to see how the possession of language played out so dramatically. One of the phrases I use a lot in the book is I say, who spoke what language mattered? (laughs) Yes. That might not be grammatically perfect, but it's a good summary uh, of some of the key themes in the book. Who spoke what language, who who could understand English uh, mattered greatly in this book. So we talked about um, uh, your interest in the Irish culture and language. Why did you choose to write on this particular case? Did you, um, how did you find out about this particular case in the first place? What drew you to write about this particular case? It, it's funny how when one finishes a book and then looks back on the stages along the way, um, one begins to think it's lucky it exists at all. Um, because my earlier plan had been to do a study of bilingualism in 19th century Ireland. Um, and if anyone knows the novel George Eliot's Middlemarch, they'll know there's a character there, Casaubon, who's writing a book called The Key to All Mythologies. <laughs> and unsurprisingly, Casaubon never finishes The Key to All Mythologies. And I think if I I had tried to write a book about bilingualism in 19th century Ireland, it would never have been finished. But in the process of that work, I came across Mam Trastner for exactly the reasons we've been describing, that it is such a, a good case study of, of larger sociological trends and larger forces of change in 19th century Ireland. And I think also uh, as a study of injustice and the interrelationship of law and language, I, I think it resonates with people you know, in other countries um, even until today. Uh, and that's one of the themes I suppose I'm, I'm particularly pleased about is that the book would contribute to thinking more about the relationship of law and language. Um, I was really surprised myself when I began to research this book to discover that interpreters were still being used in Irish courts as late as 1882. Uh, and one of the great ironies of this case is that there was an interpreter in court uh, when Miles Joyce was being um, tried. But because the judge thought he could understand English, 
the judge didn't make the service of the interpreter available to mm-hmm. Miles Joyce yeah. and instead the interpreter was used only to translate the evidence of the Irish speaking witnesses um, and I think that's an important point as we move to the present and begin to think about uh, what uh, ways in which our legal system serve or fail to serve you know, people who have uh, very particular linguistic needs. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's an um, that's an excellent point. Um, so we're now moving on to um, the findings, really, and the, the long-term significance of the book. Um, as Margaret was um, explaining earlier, um, my Joss was granted a posthumous pardon um, uh, by President Michael De Higgins uh, on April the fourth, uh, twenty eighteen, and um, a documentary television series was also produced on the case, uh, where the president said everything that happened at the level of the state was horrendous, and there was bribery involved. There was no atmosphere of equality, really. So, from a state perspective, um, why do you think that it took um, so long to reach, um, you know, uh, this decision that to reach this posthumous pardon uh, by Michael De Higgins? There was there was something acknowledged before, but it was officially really granted only last year. That's correct, and the quotation that you give from President Higgins, I think, is 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 is, is very 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 powerful and and well chosen. I think many people knew of Miles Joyce's innocence. In fact, there were times um, that it became almost a sort of rallying call for Irish nationalists. Uh, And certainly uh, for many uh, of the decades after the case, uh, it became a a shorthand really for injustice and and, and the failure of the British uh, legal administration in Ireland um, to provide adequate uh, justice to many of the people charged before it. Of course, one of the complications in in a funny way was Irish independence. Uh, And indeed, I think it took quite a bit of research um, by the Attorney General, by my colleague, Dr. Neve Howlin at UCD, who was was deployed to investigate whether or not there was a case for a pardon um, by the Irish government. Uh, And then finally, the Irish government uh, and President Higgins concluded uh, that a pardon uh, was warranted. And that continues now to make the case uh, itself a a pioneering one because it's the first time in Irish history that a pardon has been given posthumously to a case where the conviction existed prior to Irish independence. Yes. Um, We've had one case already of a posthumous pardon in Ireland, but not a posthumous pardon that predates uh, Irish independence. It does mean for the descendants of Miles Joyce, there is perhaps still some unfinished business. I I know that his great grandchildren and they were present at the pardon was very moving. Members of whom, including Caroline Conaboy, uh, would like to agitate further for a pardon from the British state because the argument they make, I think, compellingly, and I would be persuaded by that, uh, is that a recognition by the British state is also warranted uh, in this case. Yes, no, I do understand, yes. What would be your opinion on how um, this case reflects on the translation needs of our society? Um, You'd have certainly cases in which uh, a defendant would be coming to court uh, with um, very little English uh, and would certainly need an interpreter. So what's your view on uh, how this case uh, affects our needs? 
I think for me that was one of my own discoveries in the process of, of writing the book, uh, the way in which this, which is about a murder that took place in 1882, uh, can still be a case with such contemporary implications. When I began to research the case, I thought of that in terms of the status of the Irish language. And of course, that itself is an important development today. For me, that dimension, the contemporary implications of the case, has been one of the most surprising discoveries for myself. Uh, and that takes a number of forms. Uh, one of the forms it takes relates to the rights of Irish speakers today, uh, the rights of those who speak Irish as their first language to perform their daily lives, including um, their negotiations, their interactions with yeah. the state um, in the language of, Ir of Irish. Um, we have legislative protection for that, um, but we often don't have the real practical services to enable that. And, and, and that's something uh, the need for that is something with which I profoundly agree. The second dimension I think I, I did not expect to encounter so powerfully um, in, in the final stages of the book and it's one that I think really has resonated uh, for a number of readers and that is exactly as you described Priscilla and um, the rights of new communities, new immigrants to Ireland um, who are not proficient uh, in English, their, their rights to have legal services and indeed other state services made available to them um, in, in their own language. And there's a way in which I think that's becoming quite an urgent uh, social issue. Certainly recent research uh, by scholars like Kate Waterhouse, uh, by Mary Phelan at, in DCU and others uh, has shown that there is quite an urgent need by the state to resource interpreters uh, more fully. Uh, a recent international study cited Ireland as an example of worst practice, <laughs> not best practice, of worst practice in this regard in relation to uh, the resources that are being made available um, for interpreting services in courts. And of course, as we know, you know, well-skilled interpreters need to be sufficiently remunerated. And if that if that work isn't being sufficiently re remunerated uh, at the most uh, uh, basic level, and then the quality of, of the service uh, will, will follow. And I think that's particularly the case when one thinks of, of a legal situation. You know, someone may have, I suppose what linguists would call um, LEP, limited English proficiency, but to be faced by the court, a foreign alien situation, um, legal jargon, um, you know, requires a, a particular element of proficiency, which I think many people in, in our courts in Ireland today do not have. Uh, and that does bring us, I think, very poignantly back to the case of Miles Joyce. Uh, and so part of my own agitation, really, in the conclusion of this book has been that we would see those people who find themselves um, in Irish courts today as the symbolic descendants of Miles Joyce uh, and that we need to ensure um, that the services that are provided to them are of the highest quality, that they're sufficiently remunerated uh, and indeed that the standards are sufficiently well monitored. Would you say, um, would you say any particular, what would you recommend in terms of particular training? Is there anything specific that should be um, implemented, if I may say, by the state or by university trainings to ensure that we provide the best services? 
I think for me, as a, I suppose an outsider looking at the case, it, it does come back to to remuneration, so that people with, you know, sufficient qualifications um, uh, are are encouraged to do that work. Uh, I think at a at a, a public level, the awareness that this is needed is itself a, a place to start. I think many people were surprised by that fact. It was something people hadn't really thought about, um, and I think there is a danger um, that because uh, our state system can say that interpreters exist that that then is the end of the question yes. um, in the case of Miles Joyce interpreters existed um, but that certainly uh, wasn't enough so I, I think I think to answer your question I think a lot of things are needed from public awareness perhaps at one end of the spectrum uh, to proper sourcing uh, and uh, remuneration uh, at the other end of the spectrum uh, and it's an issue I think that's continuing in urgency not just in Ireland um, but elsewhere Yes absolutely um, um, You, in your book you quote Professor Michael Crawling, um, Chair Professor of French and the Head of the French Department at Trinity College Dublin that we had the pleasure of interviewing in the studio last year who highlights the, the lack of good in- interpreters uh, when needed in such cases. To quote um, uh, Professor Michael Cronin, there's absolutely no requirement that these interpreters be properly trained or that they have demonstrable proficiency in any of these languages they purport to master. The situation is one of a high degree of disorganization and a marked absence of regulation. Many existing practices are highly unethical, such as having young children interpreting for their parents in maternity hospital. But he also points out the fact that the case is not unique uh, and that it's actually the case in Europe in other countries uh, by saying that the Irish case is all the more disappointing in the one that would have thought that a country which has been bilingual since its inception would display a fair degree of sensitivity to language and translation issues. So it is interesting to, especially knowing that there is that um, there's a lot of different communities um, at the moment um, migrating to different countries, um, Ireland being obviously um, a hub uh, for many, many different uh, countries, um, many different people um, because obviously of job opportunities. So it is, yeah, it is interesting and you you would wonder uh, why, um, uh, how can we improve, obviously, because the case of having young children translating for their parents is maybe, yeah. That's right, and I, I think Professor Cronin's points bring out really well uh, the danger that the system can be ad hoc uh, and not regulated, uh, and, and that, again, is a, is a detail uh, that parallels with some of the things I've been talking about in the book. So I suppose in summary, and you know, by 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 way of conclusion, uh, for for me, it's a really important aspect to link history to the present. Uh, in one way, I'm aiming to do that by putting the language question back into how we think about 19th century Ireland. I, I think many of us, and I mentioned myself by example at the beginning, don't realise um, how close we are in our own family histories uh, to the experience of bilingualism and to the experience of large linguistic and cultural change uh, and perhaps that understanding uh, to echo this point you know might enable us to be more hospitable uh, to linguistic difference today and and to argue for more support for those you know who find themselves in precarious situations uh, in challenging situations uh, and who deserve the best standards of justice absolutely yes Thank you so much, Margaret. Um, may we ask you um, before um, the end of this interview, do you have any other projects that you'd be working on and you'd like to share with our audience today? 
Well, one of the projects I'm delighted to share with you is that I'm currently working with colleagues in UCD and the National Library uh, on a wonderful new project called the Museum of Literature Ireland. The acronym is MOLLY for short, as in Molly Bloom. It's a literary museum that will open in Stevens Green uh, in summer this year um, in the buildings where James Joy studied uh, as a young man and it will focus on 20th and 21st century uh, Irish literature and will I very much encourage listeners to visit Molly when we open uh, in the summer of this year. In the summer of this year. James Dorsey, who also reported on the case yes, as a young reporter while in Italy. Well, thank you so much, Margaret. There was, it was really interesting. And um, and we look forward to the opening uh, of Molly. <laughs> thank you. Uh, so that's the end of today's show with Margaret Kelleher from UCD. Please tune in again to see the next Vista Talk show, where we'll be discussing more interesting discussions with interesting people from all around the world. <laughs>